And you guys can be seated this morning. If you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to the Gospel of John, and um, we'll be continuing our study this morning through John chapter 9. John chapter 9. So it's been a minute since we've... (laughs) We've been in the Gospel of John, and um, this week as I was preparing, I was reminded why, why we're going through John's Gospel, because there's so much um, riches of what Christ has done, and we see this, especially in the first half of John's Gospel, in what we call the Book of Signs, which is this account of the first seven signs that Jesus did in John's Gospel. And we begin with the turning of water into wine, we see Jesus cleanse the temple, we see him turn. Uh, we see him multiply bread and loaves. We see him do all these sorts of miracles, and we come today to the sixth miracle. And we're reminded at the end of John's gospel why he wrote the gospel of John, why each one of these signs is recorded. Because John goes out of his way to say Jesus did many other things. I'm not writing down everything that Jesus did. But what I did write down, I wrote down for a purpose, for a reason. He gives us his thesis statement, and he says these things are written so that you might believe. So you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the special anointed servant of the Lord, the one that was promised in the Old Testament. And he says, and that you might believe he's the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So we see why John wrote his gospel, why he wrote these different accounts of these different signs. And as we've gone through John's gospel, we've seen that the purpose of a sign is not to focus on the sign itself, right? We use the analogy of like a road sign or the signs that say, you know, covenant church here. That's not where church is happening. The sign points us to the reality. And so we're going to see that very vividly in this sixth sign recorded in John's gospel, that the point of the sign is not to focus on the sign itself, but we're meant to point our eyes to the reality that the sign points us to, to the glory, not only of Christ, but the glory of the work that he is going to do. And so we'll see that today in John chapter 9, and we're going to try to look at the whole chapter, okay? And I think that there's something specific about this chapter that lends itself to looking at the whole thing. There's other times where chopping it up is important, but I think that as we see the whole chapter unfold, we'll see with great clarity why this account is given to us, the healing of the blind man, the opening up of his eyes in a very interesting and odd way. And what's fascinating is the whole account, we'll see it as we read, is not really focused on Jesus. Jesus is at the beginning and he's at the end, but the story is almost more about the man and his interactions with different groups. And so we'll see this morning that this healing of the blind man, this opening of his eyes is meant to be a picture of spiritual sight that is given to God's people. It's a sign and pointing forward to the spiritual sight and the spiritual blindness that God's people are saved from. And we'll see that it's contrasted with the physical sight of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders of the day, but also their spiritual blindness. And we'll see Jesus give credence to that in verse 39 today. That there's this drawing of the gospel that Christ does throughout this passage, working in this man, and by the end we'll see him come to full faith, even though he goes through many trials and tribulations along the way. So I'm going to read the passage for us. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take a look at God's word. So um, this is John chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord. 
As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. (laughs) Very interesting. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Shiloham, which means sent. So he he went and washed and came back seen. Miraculous. And the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Shiloham and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Then we get this interaction with the Pharisees. So they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when the when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man. So now they're getting the man's parents involved, okay? They're not believing the man. They got to go to his mom and dad. (laughs) And they go and they call the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we do not know that this is we, sorry, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age, and he will speak for himself. And then we get John's commentary on this. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And therefore, his parents said to him, he is of age, ask him. They're passing the buck. They don't, they don't want to get involved with this. And so we, we see now that they've interviewed the neighbors, they've interviewed his parents, and now they're going to interview the man himself. And we pick up in verse 24, it says, So, for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. But he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So he's been interviewed by all these people, flung through this public trial, and we see at the end of it, Jesus comes. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the temple of the synagogue, and having found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you um, in, um, in weakness. We come to you um, much like this man this morning. Um, if we're honest, um, feeling our way through the dark in, in many areas of our life. We are not, uh, we are not wise. We are not always um, holy. We are not good. Lord, we need your help this morning. And so we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that the light of the gospel would shine in our souls, that we would see the goodness and glory of the gospel of Christ, and that as we look at this account of the man that was healed from his blindness, we would see our need this morning and that we would come to be found in Christ and His gospel alone. So we pray that you would help us by your Spirit, and we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. So we come this morning to John chapter 9, but we can't forget where we've been before. I know it's probably been a couple months since we've been in the gospel of John, but if you remember in the previous chapter where this picks up on, we find that Jesus has declared to be the light of the world the light of the world, the one that would come as the only source of divine revelation, the giver of spiritual sight, of spiritual illumination. He has come as the light of the world. But as we remember in John's gospel, Jesus has come into a world of darkness, a world of blindness. We saw that very early on in John's prologue, that he came into the world that he made and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so he's come into this world that has rejected him, that is blind to his glory and to this light of the world, blind to their sin, blind to the glory of Christ, blind to the gospel. And we've seen throughout John's gospel that apart from his saving work, that there is no hope, that man is lost. And so we're going to see today in this picture of our saving work 
that, the, that Christ has brought in us, we'll see that pictured in this account of the man that was healed from his blindness. So we're going to look at three things this morning. First, we're going to look at the sign in verses 1 through 7, the sign and the account of the sign. Then in verses 8 through 34, we'll look at the different responses to this sign from the neighbors, from the Pharisees, from his parents, from the man himself. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at the light of the gospel as Christ responds to and seeks out this man at the end. So we, we, um, if you look there at verse 1, it's, just, it's very um, nonchalant how it's presented. It says, and as he passed by, he saw a man born blind, that Jesus passes by this man that was born blind. And we don't get much information, right? But we see later that he was a beggar, that he was this is the only means that someone like this could survive in the ancient world was to beg. He's totally blind, blind from birth. He didn't lose his sight. He never had it. He has never seen light. He's never seen anything. He is totally and completely blind, unable to see in a world of darkness, only able to beg, totally and completely blind. And this is kind of like we said, a picture of our spiritual state in our sin, right? This is how we are. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're spiritually blind, unable to see in a world of darkness. This is the created state of man in their sin. And it's important to keep this in mind as we see the rest of the chapter unfold. Jesus will draw this out, as we said at the very end. But it's very interesting. All the disciples see is a man that has a calamity. He has something wrong with him. He is blind and he's begging. And we see right from the beginning that the disciples don't understand rightly what's going on. There's a misunderstanding from the disciples. We see that in verse 2. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents? And the disciples, we can see, have a very karma view of the world, right? Either this man messed up or his parents messed up, somebody messed up in order for this man to be born the way he is. This, they're viewing this physical impairment as sort of this act of karma. He, he sinned against the universe, or whatever they would say. You know, that, that, that's the reason this had to have happened. And this can remind us of Job's friends. If you go to the book of Job, Job went through profound suffering. And his friends come to him and say, well, surely it's because of your sin. Surely it's because you messed up. And that is proved wrong through the book of Job, that it's not because of his sin that he's suffering, it's because of God's um, sovereign providence that it's happening. And so the disciples are confused. They, they don't have a way to compute this equation. Either this man sinned or his parents, and Jesus answered, neither. <laughs> it's not because of either one of those. They've missed something in their equation of the world in their equation of what's going on, namely the providence and the glory of God. And that's what Jesus says. He said, it was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That this man was born blind, not because of his sin or because of his parents' sin, but for the glory of God. And I think if we're honest, when we hear that, we're like, whoa, what, really? This man had a physical impairment. He was born blind, and Jesus tells us it's for the purpose of the glory of God, that the works of God might be displayed in this man. If you go to the book of Exodus, 
You remember the account of Moses. He sees the burning bush and, and God calls him to go and free the people from Egypt. And, and Moses says, I, I can't speak very well. I don't have great lips. I'm not very eloquent. And you know what the Lord says to him? He says, who was it that made man blind? Who was it that made man lame? Who was it that formed your lips? Was it not I? And so we see that in the scriptures, and this might be difficult for us, we might not have a place for this in our theology, and it's important to see that, that we are left with this question in our minds, why is this man born blind? Why is there sin and suffering in the world? And, and we ask, is it God? Or is it because of the sin-stained world that this man is born blind? And the answer is both. (laughs) It's both. Yes, it is because of the fall into sin that creation is cursed that this man is born blind. This was not how God created the world. But that is not because it is somehow outside of the providence of God, that God is going to use this for his purpose. He is the one that upholds and stains, sustains and governs all things. And that is for the purpose of his glory that this man's blindness was and we'll find out will not be as Jesus heals him. And so we see in this account that Jesus does something very interesting. He does something very interesting. He doesn't just command that the man receive his sight. He doesn't touch the man so that he receives his sight. He spits on the ground. Which is very, it should cause us to pause. When you're seeing something in Scripture and you're used to seeing something a certain way and it doesn't happen the way, you should pause and you should say, Why is this happening? Jesus spits on the ground, he makes mud, he takes the mud, he anoints the man's eyes, and it's not even that that heals him. He tells him to go and wash in a pool, and it's only then that the man receives his sight. This is very odd to us and it should seem very odd, but we see that. Regardless of how odd it is, the man obeys. He does what Christ says. He goes to the pool and he washes. And the man comes back seen. It's a miracle. It's miraculous. The man that was formerly blind comes back with his sight. He comes back seen. This divine power has gone out from Christ, has brought sight where there was only blindness. Divine power has gone from the Savior and has brought sight to this man who was only blind. And we can be reminded of what we read this morning in our call to worship, that during the days of the Messiah, the eyes of the blind will be opened. When the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The lame will walk. The deaf will hear. The lame will leap. All these things are promised in the book of Isaiah. You can go to Isaiah 29 and see this. Isaiah 42 says that the servant of the Lord will be a light to the nations and will cause light to shine in the darkness. And so we can see this great fulfillment of prophecy that Christ is fulfilling what Isaiah promised, that this one would come and bring sight to the blind in more ways than one will find out. So this is the sign. And now we got to see the response to the sign. And we see that in verses 8 through 34. We'll see that Christ came not just to grant this man physical sight, but that by his Spirit he came to give spiritual sight, saving faith to this man and save him from his spiritual blindness. Drawing him to himself, effectually calling him, as we'll say. But the response of those who hear about this sign 
their response is not one of faith, but one of blindness. Not one of belief, but of unbelief. And we see this kind of, it's this interwoven pattern of this man wrestling with what is right and this, what, what Christ has done to him, and we'll see people come against him in persecution and unbelief, and we'll see how saving faith ultimately wins out the day. But it's important that we look at all of these different responses as we go. So we see in verses 8 through 12, we see the response of his neighbors, that the neighbors can't even believe that this is the same person that used to sit and beg. They can't even believe it's the same man. There's a confusion about this. This man that was once born blind can now see, and they're in total disbelief. Some say, that is definitely not him. (laughs) I saw a man, and he kind of looked like him, but it wasn't this guy, because this guy can see. He probably looks a lot happier, right? He's walking around. He's not sitting there begging anymore. They're not even recognizing this man that has gone through this change wrought by Christ. But the man testifies. He says, no, it is me. (laughs) I'm not lying. I was that man, but now I can see. And he tells them, he retells the, the, the account of what happens. And we see in verse 12, they ask him, where is this one? And he says, I do not know. If you remember, he was blind when Jesus was there. And by the time he got back, Jesus was gone. And we see in verse 13 that they take him to the religious leaders. They want to really find out. They want to get to the bottom of this because they don't want any trouble in Israel. They don't want someone going around claiming that this Christ did a miracle if it's not true. And so they're going to go to the Pharisees and they're going to begin this kind of public trial of this man and ultimately of Christ. And so if you go to verses 13 through 17, we see the Pharisees, the religious leaders, their first response And we get an interesting wrinkle to this story. And sorry, I kind of left you hanging on the whole dirt thing that will come up at this point. We get a kind of wrinkle in the story. We find out in verse verse 14 that this happened on a Sabbath day. That this happened on a Sabbath day. Why is that important? If you remember in John chapter 5, Jesus has already gotten into trouble for healing a man on the Sabbath and telling him to pick up his mat and walk, which was considered work and was against the man-made pharisaical laws of the day. And we'll see, and if you remember that, it was the legalism of the Pharisees that caused them to condemn Christ for doing this miraculous work that was a violation of their man-made Sabbath laws. And why does Jesus do what he does here in spitting on the ground, in making mud, anointing the man's eyes? All of these things are violations of the Pharisaical Sabbath laws. You are not allowed to anoint someone on the Sabbath day. Jesus does that. You weren't allowed to mix or to knead, K-N-E-A-D, knead like dough. You weren't allowed to mix something together. That was considered work. Jesus does that. And you were not allowed to help someone unless it was a life-threatening issue. And Jesus helped this man by bringing him his sight. And so... While these laws might sound odd to us, this is exactly what legalism does. It, it creates new laws in order to protect us from breaking the law, which sounds good, but ultimately it's death and it's, it's bondage. It adds to the law of God in an attempt to appear more righteous. That's what these Pharisees are doing. They're saying, don't mix dirt, you know, don't do this, don't do that, in order to protect this good and right law. But in this they're just appearing, they're trying to appear more righteous. This is the legalism and the self-righteousness 
of the religious leaders of the day. And this is what allows them to call Jesus a sinner, the perfect spotless lamb they're calling a sinner. And they're saying that he has not been sent from God. And we see their blindness, their unbelief that the Savior of the world is standing right in front of them and they say, he's a sinner. He is not sent from God. But we see this is exactly why Jesus did what he did. He did it to expose them. He did it to expose them that what seemed like a random mixing of dirt and anointing of the eyes was a direct affront to the man-made laws of the Pharisees, to their legalism. This was to show them how ridiculous their legalism was, that a man had just been given his sight miraculously, healed, and all they can think about is the dirt. (laughs) I mean, think about the blindness that it takes to, to do that. They are willing to call the incarnate Son of God a heathen, the sinless Son of Man they're willing to call a sinner because he's violated their man-made laws. And this only shows how truly blind they are, that they might appear religious, they might appear pious, they might appear upright because they're, they're just trying to follow the law, but really they are spiritually dead and blind. And so we see a division arise among them, and they ask the man what he thinks of Jesus. What do you, who do you think he is? And the man kind of gives this answer. He says he's a prophet. So he's not confessing Christ yet, but he's saying there's something different about this man. There's something distinct about him because we'll see later what he says more. But notice that the Spirit is beginning to work on this man, that he's not yet confessing Christ, but he's no, he knows there's more to this man than meets the eye. And then when we go to verses 18 through 23, we see the response of the man's parents. So we've seen the response of the neighbors, we've seen the first response of the Pharisees, and then we see the response of the parents. That the religious leaders believed this was all sort of a setup, right? That um, this man, this was a fabricated miracle, right? That Jesus just pretended to heal this man, but he got it swapped out, you know, like the magicians swap out something, and so... They think it's fabricated. They think it's illegitimate. They're not happy about this. And so they question the parents of this man. In verse 19, they say, Is this your son who you say was born blind? They turn this into a public trial. They're trying to catch this man and catch Jesus in this sort of trickery that they think they are in. And this is, if you think about it, this is what unbelief does. In light of clear and overwhelming evidence, unbelief says, are you sure? No, it's got to be a trick. It's got to be a mistake. There's got to be something wrong. They cannot accept the fact that Jesus really and truly healed this man. They are in the darkness. They are blind. They are unable to see. And ultimately, they're afraid of the truth. And what's so crazy about this is that even his parents succumb to this temptation we see that even though they admit that this is their son and that he was indeed born blind, they want nothing to do with this situation. They say, ask him, you know, go talk to him. Don't don't talk to us, right? We don't want to lose our spot in the synagogue. We don't want to lose our position. Go Go talk to him. He's of age. But John tells us why they're doing this. He tells us it's for fear of the Jews, for fear of the religious leaders, for fear of man, we can say. They don't want to lose their position. They want their hands clean of this. 
And it's really for fear of persecution that they keep their mouth shut and they don't engage in this. That their son had just been miraculously and instantly healed and they want nothing to do with Jesus or this account. And again, this is the response of unbelief. It's to be afraid of man before being afraid of God. <laughs> they, don't want to get, they don't want to lose their position. They don't want to lose their place. They don't want to lose their status. And so they are more afraid of man than they are of God. And that leads them to act in this unbelief. And that's really what unbelief does. It, it can only be afraid of man. It can't be afraid of God ultimately in the true and saving sense. And so everything to this point has kind of been building. It's been building, it's been building, and it builds to this point where they themselves, the Pharisees, go and confront this man. They want to get to the bottom of it. They want to know the truth. And we see their second response in verses 24 through 34. By this point, the religious leaders have had enough. They say, okay, no more. We're fed up. You need to recant everything that you've said. Just admit that this man is a sinner. Reject him, and you can go your merry way. Just, Just say he's a sinner. Just tell us the truth. Admit that he's messed up. Bend the knee, and we'll just let you go. We we won't give you any more trouble. But we can see what's so amazing about these verses is that we can see that God is at work in this man, even in the simplest and most newest of faith. We see in verse 25, he says this, amazing words, whether he is a sinner, I do not know, but one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He says, I'm not really sure about everything. I don't really have some great theological answer for you. All I know is that I'm not the same. I used to be blind, but now I can see. I used to be helpless, begging on the side of the road, but now I am no longer in that position. Where there was only darkness, now light has shone. And they cannot understand this. They can't make sense of what he's saying. And so they just keep questioning him. How did he do it? Who did this? And he says, I love this response. I love his response. It's so innocent. It's so so great. He said, I already told you. (laughs) Do you want me to hear it again? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want me to tell you the story again of how Jesus brought sight to my eyes? And they ask this great question. He says, do you also want to follow him? Do you want to be his disciples? Do you want to join me? And they, they can't stand this. They can't stand this innocent, simple faith of this man. And so they revile him. They mock him. They say that they trust in Moses. They somehow try to pit Moses against Jesus, which don't do that. You can see John chapter 5. Jesus says, Moses wrote about me, right? So we can't pit Moses against Jesus, but that's what they try to do. They're trusting in Moses apart from Christ. They say, we're disciples of Moses. They're kind of standing on that. And um, they've tried to separate the law and the gospel and promise and fulfillment and all these bad things. And they remain blind to Christ and the glory of Christ. As Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians, that the veil remains over their eyes. They can't see the glory of the Christ that's right in front of them. But as we see with this man, as we see with this one who was formerly born blind, that the light of the gospel is really starting to begin to shine on this man. We see in verse 30, he says, this is an amazing thing, that this man opened my eyes 
and this is something that no one has ever done, and yet you don't know where he comes from. He's almost saying like, duh, (laughs) this man opened my eyes. It's very clear where this man is from. He is not from earth only. He is also from heaven, sent by the Father, commissioned by him, has his authority, sent from above. He's saying he's clearly from God. This is what this man is saying, that the light of this gospel is starting to shine on him. But we'll see the Pharisees don't like this one bit. They cannot refute what this man says. They're filled with anger and rage that this unlearned beggar who's never read a word in his life because he hasn't been able to see is able to confront them, is able to make them stumble and ultimately silence them. And they call him a sinner and they excommunicate him. It says they cast him out, which means they cast him out of the temple, out of the synagogue. He's no longer allowed to worship with the Jews of that day. He is cast out. He's excommunicated. And this would not only leave him religiously alone, but even socially. I mean, to be a Jew and to not be allowed to worship at the temple was social unheard of. It was to be totally cast out He was to be totally alone, and all of this because he was simply telling the truth about what happened to him. And this is where we get to our third point this morning, that Jesus has not left this man alone. Even though Jesus has not been with him in this account, we'll see that Jesus does not leave this man alone. I loved what one early church father said, Christosom said this, even though the Jews cast him out of their temple, It is the true Lord of the temple that comes and finds him. That as we see in John John 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found him, said to him. Jesus comes and seeks him out and finds this man. The one that has been cast out by the Jews has been found by Jesus. Christ. And he asked him this question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the promised Messiah, the Christ, the one from the Old Testament, the one that would come and save his people from their sins, those that were in spiritual darkness? Do you believe in this one? And his response is very interesting. He says, I want to believe. I just need to know who he is. I need to know who this Son of Man is. And if you remember, His eyes were blind when Christ healed him. He does not know who it is who's talking to him. And Jesus comes to him, and this man is crying out, Who is he that I may know him and believe? And Jesus says, The one that's speaking to you is he. I'm the one that not only opened your eyes, but gave sight to you spiritually. He turns to him and says, You have seen him. (laughs) Very important word there. You have seen him. Not only physically, but spiritually, and it is He who is speaking to you. I am the one that has not only given you physical sight, but true spiritual sight. That once where there was only darkness, now the light of Christ has shone. The Son of Man and the Son of God has revealed Himself to this man, not only bringing light to his eyes, but light to his very soul. And look at the response of the man. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worships. Three words, Lord, I believe, and he worships. And we see the beauty and the simplicity of this man's faith. He doesn't go on this long thing. He just says, Lord, I believe. I believe. 
We see him acknowledge Christ as the true ruler and king. We see his profession of faith. We see, he's saying, I believe. Not just, I believe that Christ exists. I believe that he's real. He's saying, I believe. I've professed this faith for myself. And we see that he worships Christ. He ascribes glory that is only proper of God himself. Jesus does not reject this worship. He gladly accepts it, not because he's just a man, but because he is God incarnate. And so we see here that the Spirit has done this work in the man's soul, causing the eyes of his heart to see. And while we won't be able to get into um, the latter half of these verses um, this week, we'll look at it next week, we'll see next week that this same sun that has shone on this man that has melted the ice of this man's dry, cold soul is the same sun, as Spurgeon will say, that hardens the clay of these Pharisees. That they want nothing to do with this man, that even though these Pharisees can physically see with their eyes, will see that it is them that are actually spiritually blind and hardened to the light of the gospel of Christ. And so this is the great irony of this passage that the ones that have the most religious knowledge, the ones that have actually their physical sight are the ones that are the most blind. And it is the blind man, the one that has nothing that is truly able to see. And so as we walk away from this passage today, there's a lot of things that we could talk about in, by way of application, right? We could talk about the providence of God. We could talk about the providence of God that even the effects of sin on our lives are not outside of the providence of God. And maybe you're struggling this morning with ailments in your body. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's in your body. Maybe it's in your mind. Maybe you know someone else that's suffering. And so it can be difficult in those seasons to understand why is this happening? Why is this so? And the answer is we don't really know right now. We are not always given the answer to why we suffer, why we go through hardship. But we see an answer to this is that so that the works of God might be displayed. I mean, and what comfort that is for Christians that ultimately all things will work for the glory of God and our joy. So we have to trust that. So we could talk about that. We could talk about the legalism of the Pharisees, this making of laws, the binding of consciences unnecessarily, the danger of adding to God's law. We could talk about all that. But I think what we need to see this morning and what stands out the most in this passage is our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, that seeks and saves that which is lost. He's the one that leaves the 99 to find the one. He is the good shepherd, as we'll see in John chapter 10, that this man that was blind and begging on the side of the road in total darkness, what does it say in verse 1? Jesus seeks him out. And he not only seeks him out at the beginning, but he finds him in the end and he brings life to his soul. And this is really a picture of us, as we've said, a picture of us in our sin, that we are blind, we are unable to see. Not only are we blind to the effects of our sin, right? We don't even think of sin as a bad thing when we're in unbelief. We just kind of say, well, I don't want to get caught doing that. I, I, I know that feels bad to do this, but we're blind to what sin really is and the effects that it really causes in our life. We're blind to the glory of God. <coughs> Excuse me. And what the good shepherd does is seeks out those that are blind and he comes and he brings life to them. The good shepherd comes 
to them, seeks them out, that which was lost, and he comes and he saves his people. But not only does he seek out his own, it is him alone that has the divine power to overcome their spiritual blindness and bring true sight. This man's blindness was not cured by the dirt. It was not cured by the pool that he washed his eyes in. This man's sight was brought back because of the divine power of Christ that was able to cut through the darkness, cut through this infirmity, and bring the light of true sight. And that's what's happened in our, in our souls, right? We were once darkened in our sin, and Christ has brought true light. And it is only through the work of the Spirit of God revealing Christ, and as we read in 2 Colossians, in 2 Corinthians, the light of the gospel, that by that light shining into our souls, that is how we come to be saved. That we can say, now I see. <laughs> I once was blind, but now I see. I once was blind to the effects of my sin. Now I see what my sin has caused and earned me. I once was blind to the glory of the gospel of Christ. Now I see the glory of what Jesus has done. I once was blind to the mercy of God, His mercy and even giving me life and breath. And now I am very keenly aware of the mercy that God has poured out for me, not only in His common grace, but in His special redemptive grace that He's worked for us in Christ. And so this morning, in this man, I think we see something of the journey of faith, right? That for many of us, maybe you came to faith very immediately. It was quick. It was sudden. And maybe for other of, others of us this morning, there's been a long struggle that's been paved by persecution and people coming at you and your faith. And we'll see, we see in this passage that it is saving faith that wins the day, that it is not about this man's strength. His faith is very simple. It's very weak but he's able to refute those that know a lot that truth will always win out. And we can sing, as we're going to sing in a little bit in the song Amazing Grace, the great uh, song says, I once was blind, but now I see. That is our hope this morning, that we were once blind, but because of Christ's work in dying, resurrecting, and ascending to the right hand of the Father, we have true spiritual life in the gospel. So let's pray this morning as we close. Lord, we thank you for um, your word, for all that you've done for us in Christ. And as we see um, a picture this morning of the need of true saving faith, we pray that you would um, open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that the light of the gospel would shine in, that it would strengthen your people this morning. And if anyone does not know you, Lord, that the light of the gospel would shine in a profound way that it would penetrate the darkness, that it would illuminate not only our sin, but the need of a, of a Savior this morning. And so we ask and pray this morning that you would, by your Spirit, you would give us new hearts, that you would breathe life into our souls, and that, um, that as we go throughout the day, even though we will face persecution for our faith, we will face those that come against us and don't even believe that we're the same person. <laughs> We would, we would come before your throne, we would come before your grace, and as this man, in very simple words, say, Lord, I believe, and worship you alone. We, um, we ask and pray that you would do this through the power of your Spirit, and we ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen.